In this breaking news edition of Startups for the Rest of Us, we have the first interview with ADPNR of Conversio after he sold his company to Campaign Monitor for a life-changing amount of money. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 467. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups, whether you built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with ADPNR, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups in order to provide a better life for ourselves and our family, but also to improve the world in a small way. And this podcast aims to highlight folks that are, that are winning, highlight folks that are struggling, highlight folks that have won, but let them talk about the struggles along the way. Because frankly, a lot of the media seems to whitewash it. And the TechCrunch articles we read in Inc. Magazine and such, I don't know, they paint the picture that, that maybe that this is easy or that we should have you know, millions in revenue in the first couple of years and that, and that if you sell for less than a billion dollars, that's somehow a failure. But it's not. We talk on this show about building businesses, building real companies instead of building slide decks. We don't ask for permission to start companies. We go and start them and we build real businesses with real customers who pay us real money. Starting a company is hard. More than half of building a successful startup is managing your own psychology. And we're going to dive into that today with ADPNR as we do a breaking news interview with him after he exited from his company Conversio. Now, ADPNR was the co-founder of WooThemes many years ago, which later sold to WordPress parent company Automatic. And after leaving WooThemes, he started Conversio, which it began, it was called Receiptful. It's a SaaS app. And it was essentially an email service provider that catered to e-commerce companies. So they integrate with Shopify and BigCommerce and a few others. And he built it up into a multiple seven-figure SaaS app. And AD and I have known each other for years. He's a three-time microconf speaker. And I was super happy for AD, you know, it, that this exit went through and that, that he was able to, to have this moment, especially with Campaign Monitor, which is, a, you know, a company I think a lot of us know and, and respect. And so now he and his team are working for Campaign Monitor and they rebranded Conversio to CM Commerce. But before we dive in, I wanted to remind you that the Tiny Seed Batch 2 applications open on November 1st. Head over to tinyseed.com and you can get an email when the applications open. In this interview, AD and I walk through it all. We talk a little bit about growing Conversio, but we dive in mid-story, as I like to do, to cover when did AD decide to sell, why did he decide to sell, what that process was like, how painful or not it was, how long it took, how the transition's been, and a couple things that he bought shortly after the exit closed. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with AD PNR. AD PNR, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, I'm so surprised this is the first time that you've been on Startups for the Rest of Us. Um, I just thought somewhere in the back of my mind I had invited you on before, but apparently, as you just told me, this is this is it. This is your premiere. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just going to settle. Like, I think the, the most politically correct thing to say is um, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So I know I'm here just because of you know, kind of all these years long of absence, right? That's That's right. That's right. And you know, what a, what an episode to be on, man. Like we could have, we, we could have had, you know, had John years ago to talk about woo themes. We could have talked about when you started Receipful, renamed it to Conversio, you know, the agony and the, the victories and all the, everything that it takes to, to build a, a seven figure SaaS app. But here we are, we're able to talk about 
essentially what I, I'm calling a life-changing exit. Is, is that sound reasonably correct? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's the way, you know, I describe it as well, I think, and, you know, in, in, in more ways than one. But yeah, definitely life, life-changing. And, you know, and I think the, even on the ground and saying that and thinking about that and hearing me say that, like settling into that, that new normal, right? I mean, that, that's how I know that this is life-changing because I've not yet settled into that new normal. I just know that it's on the horizon. Yeah, exactly. Could, can you take me back to the moment that the docs were signed and were you, like me, refreshing your, your bank account just to see when the wire came through? Well, what, what did that feel like when you saw that many zeros in your bank account? The, I think the funny thing, Rob, is that I think I saw the first cash from the deal. So I, firstly, I got paid last, right? Like everyone else, all of our NCLs got paid first. And I don't know why, some kind of British legal thing. And um, then the money also went to our family office. And then only it got to me in South Africa, like some of it at least, right? So I think by the time it got here, like... I'd already just dipped into debt in South Africa just to buy a few things and reward myself. Yeah, and the money itself was odd. I, I like that was seemingly even thinking about not that now, like actually just receiving the money. It, it ended up not being the the predominant experience that I you know seem to re, you know, remember from from recent weeks. Yeah, and that's interesting. It never ceases to amaze me how something that you can chase your whole life, you can achieve it. And then within days or weeks, it suddenly becomes a new normal, as you said. Well, you know what? I, the way I think about it, you know, Rob, is I think firstly, I've, like money itself has never been a good motivator for me, right? And I know that to many people that sounds weird because I have, for my whole ha- adult life at least, I've been an entrepreneur and I've been working on my own things. So there is that pursuit of money, but money itself has never been, you know, a, a motivator. It's, it's generally the kinds of things that... I attach to money, right? The the kind of life I can build in a way. And to that extent, like the you know, the thing that both Jean, my wife and I said to each other beforehand was that we already had a really good life before and we didn't need a single event, especially not one of this magnitude, to like change the fundamentals of our lives. Like we weren't gonna change our family values just because we had more money, right? So I think that's part of why Part of why I've probably just not enjoyed or indulged in the kind of the financial aspect of the kind of of the exit just yet. I find that very common with makers. You know, you're a, a developer yourself, and a lot of the makers I know, most of them, they start companies not for the money, but for the freedom the money could potentially bring them. I'm the same way. I, I just wanted to be able to go build interesting things. And I found that working for other people, I couldn't do that. I built really boring things that I didn't like and I didn't have any equity. And then at the, you know, at the end, finally starting your own thing, it's like, wow, I just want enough time to build fun things and cool things that I'm interested in, you know, and how, how do you get there? And I, I think, I think starting companies is, is one way to do that. Exactly. Right. So hence why like in, in the kind of you know, the two months, we're a little bit beyond two months now since the transaction closed, right? So, and you know, in those two months, you know, my team and I have been hustling in terms of evolving the product, rebranding the product, trying to focus, at, you know, kind of our attention on like doing more good work, right? Because I think those things ultimately are 
like I just gravitate, you know, towards that. Like you know, everything else is always just the distraction to what I actually want to do, which is, as you said, like I just like create value, like do cool stuff, whether it's my own or kind of otherwise. I, I mean, I I only have experience when working my own things, so I think you know this going into, uh, you know, a new parent company, and I think that's different, right? And that's something that I will kind of evolve into. But that's at least been the focus for the last two months, right? As I said, just getting back to doing good focused work. Folks who are listening know that, that you started Conversio, which essentially was or is an email service provider. And, you know, you mentioned to me that you started it in 2014. Now, selling it here five years later, you, you grew it into a seven-figure SaaS app and then and then you had an exit. I mean, that's that's only five years. And when I say only... I either literally mean that or I mean it in quotes because sometimes oh, five years of running a software company and growing it can be very painful. How do you feel about that? Is, do you feel like, wow, this was a, a quick victory for me, a Cinderella story? Or do you feel like it was a grind and five years was, was really tough and I'm, you know, I feel good to kind of have made this next step into this next stage of my life? Yeah, I mean, I think on average, Rob, I, I mean, we started the kind of the, the chats and you know, this is life-changing, right? And I think I try and think positively, or I, I definitely think positively about the whole exit, like in that vein, right? I think it is life-changing. And, you know, to that extent, I am, I'm really happy about the new home that we found for, you know, both the product and the team. I think the, the kind of the cool thing there is that I, there is some personal affinity, you know, with Campaign Monitor, our new parent company, in the sense that, I've been a user forever, like firstly a customer, like, and we, we were still customers of theirs at the point of acquisition. And that's always been by choice. But also just like when I started working with WooThemes back in the day, like 2007, those were the kind of the wild, wild west of kind of, you know, software, like online software, SaaS, et cetera. Right. And from afar, I, we always looked at, you know, campaign monitor and we were super jealous. I mean, I can remember, for example, when they put up their like fancy Sydney offices and like Magnus, Mark and I were like looking at that and, and, and drooling, right? Not that we needed fancy offices because we had a mostly distributed team, but there's always been that kind of just personal affinity. And like when you get almost your euros, kind of a euro company that you know, come in and express interest to buy this thing that you've built, I think that's a, you know, that's a great feeling as well. So, I mean, there's definitely like, that's predominantly the lens that I look at, you know, at the, at the exit. And I think, you know, depending on how, how deep you want to get, I think ultimately the, the flip side to that is we were operating in a very competitive space. And I also knew that to compete, we probably had, well, we had to either like accelerate our growth, you know, organically or sustainably and, and with our own means, or we had to raise more money because we had well-funded competitors that were, kind of definitely making moves within the industry. So you kind of look at that five years and say, could we have done more to grow it further and exited, you know, a year, two, three, four down the line for, you know, some kind of exponential multiple? And yes, I think that is possible. But I I think like you sometimes just get an opportunity to, you know, get a really good exit, which is I think what we got. And you kind of have to seize that, almost to seize that moment, because you never know what what changes beyond your control in the next you know, two or three years. Yeah, I've seen folks ride their business over the top, so to speak. And once that growth stops, suddenly your multiple is, it's not, you know, 4x instead of 5x multiple. It becomes like a 1.5x instead of 5. It's a huge change once you stop growing. Given, 
you know, the potential for recession that folks are talking about. I think it's easy. If you're in it for another five to 10 years, go for it. But if you're at the point, like my mental model is if you're at the point where you're, you're burned out or you're thinking about doing something else or, hey, having enough money where I could kind of ride off into the sunset is starting to sound appealing and you can get that, like what's the difference between having that and two times that, you know what I mean? It, it like, I mean, I talked about this in a microconf talk after we sold drip and it was the same, the same model. It's like, yeah, I could keep riding this up, but I don't want to be that person that, you know, winds up having, having kind of a major regret about it. Last year you spoke at microconf Europe in Croatia. And if I recall, your talk was pretty raw. You know, you talked about running Conversio and some of the challenges that, that you were facing both emotionally and just with the business, just that there were competitors. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff, as you said, in this space that make it difficult. When did you decide to sell and why? Is, is that, was that part of it? Yeah, so definitely. I mean, I think many people look at, and I hate the term, by the way, but look at serial founders and they figure, you know, oh, you're like the second, third and fourth time is just so much easier. And I, I actually found it was completely the opposite for me. I actually think the second time was much harder Possibly because the first time was partly okay. We think you know caught a wave, and the extent of our success, you know, was definitely you know, kind of part luck and timing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, coming into Conversio, it was just harder than that. And we also started off growing wildly, and then growth plateaued, right? And I think so to that extent, it was harder. And the other thing that made Conversio really much harder for me over the years was the fact that you know Eddie Junior was born, I believe, uh, quick math two years. So he was two, he was two years old by the time that I left Themes and sold out of Themes. By the time I had started working on Conversio, I had a, you know, kind of a six month old baby in the house. And like, I think having kids and having dependents and two dependents, as well as Jean, like that's, that always seemed to aggravate my fears, my awareness of risk, and um, those kind of things. So I think the second time was just much, much harder. So by the time we, we had gotten to, to microconf, I, I think, and my talk in microconf, it was mostly a sense of being tired. The short story there is about a year before, we had thought we had revenue, which we then didn't have. And I mean, I think a context was at that stage, I think we, we literally lost due to a reporting bug. We lost about 25K MRR, right? And we'd been pretty frugal and keeping revenue and expenses close to break even some some months just over some months just under right not a big cash reserve and then this revenue just disappears right the revenue we thought was there and was just there was just a lag from our payment processor effectively and i had to lay off two team members and that's this november 20, you know, 2017 and for the next year all we had to do was really like be brutal in terms of turning the business around and making sure that it was profitable. And we did that on almost kind of, not zero, but like minimal, I think we probably did uh, around about 10% revenue growth in that whole year, right? Start to finish in that process, but we turned profitability around drastically. And it was just a hard year, right? And I think for me, just given the overall and overarching experience of the second time being harder and then going through a tough year like that, yeah, as I said, I, I, I was just tired. And I think... At least for me, is like, you know, when I feel like that and I don't feel as energized and ambitious, then I start looking at options, which meant that throughout that year, throughout last year, I at least started putting feelers out there to see, you know, kind of, should we raise more money? That was one option. Um, or should we actually look for some kind of strategic partnership or acquisition? 
And those layoffs, that's that must have been really tough. Is that the first time you'd had to lay people off? Um, yeah, I've, I've had to let people go before due to performance or something. But this is the first time that like a big reason for them leaving the team was just like we couldn't afford to keep them. Right. So uh, and that was on me um, and that sucked. Yeah, it's really hard to be doing your best and trying to take care of everybody and to make a mistake like that. I, I know how that feels myself. I ran. But a lot of people don't realize how how close to the margins so many of, of these successful SaaS apps actually run. You know, you have an app doing one, two, three million dollars a year, and that sounds like this amazing windfall. And of course, when an app stops growing, you can it'll plateau and you can have these amazing profit margins, right? 50% is kind of the net margin I hear thrown around for SaaS if you need a team to do it. And if you have, there's kind of this special Cinderella SaaS where like Hittail had like an 80% net margin or something, 85%. But you can get a lot out of it. But when when an app is growing and you're driving and you have a bunch of competitors and you're building features and you're, you're basically trying to keep your head above water as you're growing, most of these apps are run at break even for a very long time. And I don't, I don't, think that a lot of people, you know, realize that. So, so what that means is that one small misstep with cash or, you know, as you're saying, with kind of an accounting snafu can really mean some pretty drastic stuff. I bet at the time, like now, as we say it, it's like, oh, you had to lay two people off. You know, that was tough. At the time, did that feel kind of catastrophic? Like, was that, was it a huge weight on you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't remember, Rob, like, at least in terms of you know, from day one of starting Conversio, like going through like a darker period of my life. Because I I think the kind of, you know, part of that is I, I'm also solo founder, right? I Like nobody is was as invested in this business as I was. I mean, even if I consider, like if I consider Jean from a family perspective, like she has that financial exposure, but like it wasn't her decisions that, influenced what happened in the business right so like there's literally and it wasn't on the shelters either right they were they were passive in that sense they perhaps had kind of they obviously had their capital kind of exposed and at risk but it's not the same thing and i think you know it, it very quickly became a very very lonely thing you know both in terms of taking responsibility you know for what had happened but also kind of literally the next steps in terms of telling two people listen you're you you're unfortunately redundant. Here's the situation, and you know, doing that, handling the, you know, kind of being there for the rest of the team after they lose friends, two friends, for example, that's hard. And then, you know, having to, I think the thinking back now, the, the hardest part is going through such a tough experience. Also, at the end of the calendar year, right, when one tends to be a little bit more tired, probably than in January, you know, ha- having to rally the troops because. The business needed to be turned around, right? It wasn't just about letting two people go. We needed to shift, you know, momentum drastically. I think those things, like it just, I probably walked through kind of, you know, 2018, just feeling this immense, immense, you know, kind of weight on my shoulders. Like I've never felt it before, not with Blue Themes, not with Converger before, and probably not with anything else that I've done in my life. How large was your team at the time? 30, 14, I believe. So we went down 14 to, to 12. To 12, yeah, that's a big hit. So, uh, you know, obviously we can hear it in your voice and just, and just in the events you're talking about that why you would start thinking about other options, right? And you, you mentioned raising funding. And you actually dropped me a line, I believe. You sent me an email and, and asked about 
the drip exit, right? And and then did you and I jump on a call? Remind remind me of what happened because I remember introducing you to Einar, and this is before Tiny Seed, I believe. And then you know the two of you, I, I got in a conversation about what it would look like to exit. But, but remind me the process because I'm guessing you'll you'll remember it better than I do. Yeah, I, I don't think we spoke again after that. By the way, I think the the, the the last time before this we spoke was a couple of weeks ago, just after the exit. Got it. So it was in was it in Microconf Europe? Yeah. Okay. So that was it. So that would have been almost a year ago now. Yeah. And you must have been, you must have asked me about what it would look like to exit. And I, I think I said, hey, I know this guy. Oh, so it was, so we probably just announced Tiny Seed literally like a week before that. And I knew that Einar helps, you know, part of what he's done over the past several years is helping SaaS founders, seven figure and eight figure SaaS founders exit and, and run a process and sell their companies to, um, well, really to strategic buyers is, is what they do. And so I introduced you there. Now, did you follow other leads as well? Or, or w- once you talked to Einar, were you kind of like, this is, this is something? Yeah, no. So I, I fully stuck to, to Einar. I, uh, I, I'm a big believer at least in, well, both in life and business, but in business to, you know, to try and consolidate relationships as much as possible. And like, if I find someone that, that resonates with me and that there's a you know, fit for my personality, then like I'm, I'm all in. Right. And so Einar is the founder of, of Discretion Capital and you worked with him to essentially run a process is what it's called. And, and folks who've done it know what that means. But for folks who, who don't know what that phrase means, can you talk about what, what that looks like? And, you know, I guess from a high level, what it looks like, but also I'm curious to hear you like your individual, you know, we can dig into your individual story as, as you went through that process. Yeah, so the, the the process, at least um, the way I understand it, because in some ways we ended up having quite a simple process, I, I think, right? But I, this is also the first one that I that I ran. But effectively, what that meant was Einar and I worked together to put together a, a prospectus of some kind, you know, for the business, and then identify potential acquirers, both strategics or just kind of you know uh, financial sponsors which was a new term that I learned as well. And then the, the ultimate goal, I think, with kind of any exit then is once you have that is to, to try and get multiple parties interested, right? Because if you have multiple parties interested, you can probably play that interest off each other to make sure you get the best possible bid. And I think, you know, in, in, in saying that, you know, the best possible bid isn't necessarily the one that has the highest valuation. Um, it could be related to, kind of, you know, payment terms, some kind of restrictions or warranties, or just kind of a, almost a cultural thing, right? So, you know, I, I know of friends, for example, that ran through a you know, process and is one friend specifically that has sold multiple businesses. And he told me that in his last business, he didn't choose the one that had the highest valuation. He chose the, the company and team that he thought would kind of really make progress you know, with the product, because that was more important for you know, Tim at that stage. So I think that's what that kind of, you know, competitive, you know, bidding process looks like in, in terms of getting multiple interest parties and then hopefully multiple bids on the table. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. My understanding of it, and I'm actually not that, uh, I've never been through a process and I'm not super familiar with it, but my understanding is when you work with a broker or an investment banker like this and they do run a process, they essentially, they take all your financials, they put them together, they crunch them, they run numbers, they put spreadsheets together, they put a kind of a one to three sheet, one to five page teaser together that is totally anonymous and they circulate that out 
to folks that, that they think would be interested strategically and financially, as you said, and then they circulate that confidentially, folks will respond and say, oh, I'm interested, and then they sign an NDA, and then they you know, have a deck that they've prepared in essence, and talks kind of go from there. And as you said, the key here is to get multiple offers, because that's the way to, it's, it's a market, right? And it's, it's the way to get the best price. So I'm curious, was the, you know, when I went through the, the drip sale process to Leap Pages, it was not that. We didn't run a process. They approached us. It was still very, very painful. Um, very, it was agonizing for me. There was like, it was a 13-month process total, but it was really hardcore for about six months, where it was maybe 10 to 20 hours a week for six months for me of negotiation and then getting to a letter of intent and then, you know, all that stuff. How long did it take once things started getting moving? And I don't just mean, you know, getting your financials together and, and doing other stuff, but actually when you started doing calls, you know, when it, it, cause it kind of becomes real once you get on the phone or get on a zoom call with, with a potential acquirer who it's like, we're going to write you a big check, but we have all these hurdles to go through from that point. When it started getting real, how long did it take until the deal closed? Yeah. So uh, timeline from, uh, from the first email indicating interest to transaction closing is less than three months. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely has its advantages, right? I mean, objectively, I think um, I mean, this wasn't something that necessarily was top of mind for me, but I think having such a kind of short close is generally beneficial to the seller because if, for whatever reason, the kind of deal falls through, right, you can quickly get back on the market and someone that, you know, if you had multiple interested parties before, you can kind of pursue them, right? So I think that's the objective benefit of a shorter close. I wasn't concerned about that at all. Like I wasn't just not, and this is not me saying it in hindsight because my, my boss and colleagues are, are listening. That was just never a concern for me. I liked the fact that there was momentum because it became a forcing function to get through tedious due diligence things, which was kind of crazy. Ultimately, at the same time, as I said, like, as I elaborate on all these benefits of a short close, I now also just know that like it felt like drinking from a fire hose, right? Uh, I just had to learn so many different things, and like from a like a legal documented uh, compliance standpoint, I was exposed to new things at a incredible rate. So like that definitely took its toll just on me personally, and again because I'm solo founder, right? So I I was lucky to that extent. Um, I had Einar, who we've kind of you know, chatted about, like. I think his experience was really helpful in just guiding me through that process, right? And also just running interference on certain things. So that was helpful. And the other thing that Einar did, even though it cost me a lot of money, I, I think it you know, probably saved, shaved a couple of years off of the kind of the, the bill I would have had to, the stress bill that I would have had to pay, right? But um, as soon as we had a LOI signed, you know, Einar advised me and he said, just like, if you don't have you know, legal counsel that has M and A experience. Find the best legal counsel you can find and get them involved. And we've got a fantastic firm in the UK that assisted us you know, with this. And that's, as I said, it's not cheap. It's you know, it's it's, it's almost you know when you eventually pay the bill, it's it, you, it feels like a bit of a grudge purchase kind of thing. But objectively, I know that there was no way for me to kind of navigate this this transaction without that experienced and expert you know, kind of expert help. Yeah, it's a big it's a big deal when this much money's throwing around. I mean, I went through the same mental process of, you know, when lead pages approached us to acquire Drip, it was like, well, do I hire someone to represent me like a broker? Do I hire a lawyer? And I hired both. And you're right, it's not cheap, but 
I think it it saved years of my my life. I think is what you were saying. It was it reduced so much stress because I just felt like I was dotting I's and crossing T's. And I'm gonna sell a couple companies in my life, probably. You know, whereas on the other side, acquirers have often acquired five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Like they know way, and the lawyers they know way more about it than you do. So, you know, not having an expert on your side is tough. I do know some folks who have done it, and and they I think are better, better people than I in terms of being able to, you know, put up with the uncertainty. So, I mean, 90 days is, is short. I mean, I said, wow, when, when you said that, that's, I hear a lot of um, acquisitions take a lot longer than that. Did it feel quick to you or did it feel like 90 days of agony, uncertainty, pain, due diligence? Due diligence wasn't that bad. Um, like I, I went into it expecting much, much worse and it wasn't bad. And I think, my gut feel is it wasn't that bad for two reasons. I think first is, you know, kind of uh, the parent company, they were trying to do almost, this is obviously not a term, but malicious kind of due diligence, right? They were just not just doing due diligence for due diligence sakes. So I think that's the, the first part. And the second part that I am actually really proud of is that I ran a really clean business, right? And and I, and I say that in, in the way that I, I'm not a tax advisor, so like do, do not take any of my your words here as, as tax advice, but like I think most founders know how to find a few tax efficiencies in their businesses by, you know, kind of interlacing personal interests with business interests and whatnot, right? And I just never did that. Even though I was, you know, solo founder, even though I had more than seventy percent of the equity by the time the transaction closed, there just wasn't there just wasn't stuff there. And our accounts were up to date. And like we tried to run like in terms of our from tech stack to solutions we used like you know with a software or some kind of you know process within the business like everything we tried to simplify things and i think that greatly assisted us that due diligence wasn't that bad but the uncertainty was still there you get to a point there's a tipping for me there was a tipping point and it was very early on where i know i shouldn't get attached to things right and then you suddenly your mind does this kind of trick on you pulls a trick on you where it says don't, don't screw this up now because this is significant and potentially life-changing and then that uncertainty kicks in like what happens if i get onto one of these calls and they find some kind of skeleton in the closet that i wasn't even aware of and the deal falls through right so up until close you know that that was something that at least pulled a few kind of mental strings for me um, in a way that wasn't necessarily pleasant or helpful as founders, we always find something to worry about, don't we? Well, yeah, because if we didn't have that, right, we also wouldn't apply the same kind of, you know, mental gymnastics to conjure up creative, you know, valuable ideas and, you know, bring them to life. Indeed. And so, I mean, exiting the campaign monitor is is awesome. Like that's such a, I, to be honest, I have campaign monitor was, may have been the first ESP I ever used even before MailChimp. And I've always had a lot of respect. They, you know, they went in through the kind of, it was ESP, an ESP for designers is how I always thought of it. And I think, I'm guessing it was started by a couple designers based on the the UX that, that they've had over the years, but you've had a, a huge transition now and you were able to, to sell the company. Um, your whole team now works for Campaign Monitor. They've actually rebranded Conversio to be uh, CM Commerce. What is it like to go from a team of a dozen or so people to working at a company that large? How many employees does Campaign Monitor have? Uh, almost 650, I think. Yeah, so that's a big difference. Talk us through that. Like, how, how has that felt? 
it definitely has its challenges, right? I mean, like, I think the, the way we used to work has to change, right? I think that's the, you know, that's the, the, the simple reality because the things that we did as a, you know, completely distributed teams and small team and intimate team at that, you know, that doesn't translate well to such a big corporation, right? And I think, you know, part of that as well is like, we are the smallest consideration in terms of just people volume, right? We're, we were 11 people that ultimately went along with the acquisition. And there's 600 people there that are already more settled. And, you know, some of them have been there for 10, 11, 12, you know, 13 years. So I think, you know, that has to change. And I think for us, at least, we went into that change very quickly because we wanted to get to the improved rebranded version of the product pretty quickly. So we had to really literally make relationships on the fly with our new colleagues, which I think is that is just challenging because relationships just take time. What's actually struck me most is the fact that, you know, most people on my team, doesn't matter what, which role they were hired for, but they wore multiple hats in terms of doing things that just needed to get done. And I know that that was true for me as, you know, as founder and as leader of the team as well. And the biggest kind of change that I've noticed is most people are more narrow in their definition of how they add value to the organization, right? And just in terms of this is my skill set, this is my expertise, these are my responsibilities. And at least for, for me as a founder, that's a that's a hard, natural jump to make, right? I think that's that's the biggest challenge that I have. But it also brings along with it quite a bit of excitement, right? Where I can probably do some things that are, you know, kind of a little bit freer, more creative, maybe more suited to particular strength of mine, instead of having to necessarily worry about all these things. All right. So, I mean, one of the things being like, I, I did conversions, bookkeeping, you know, all the way up till exit, right? I, I could do it. They were perfect. As I, as I mentioned, they, they weren't flagged in, in due diligence, for example, and taxes got paid, etc. But that's probably not my my magic, right? I like there's probably better bookkeepers and accountants and whatnot um, in the world. But that I think that opportunity and that change is it's bittersweet to some extent because I am someone that can wear multiple hats. But as I said, I I I mostly focused on seeing where being a bit of a more of a specialist and focused in a specific area of the business, um, you know, seeing where that takes me uh, in the future. What was the hardest moment of the acquisition process. Do you remember a time during that 90 days when you just thought this is this is brutal? I mean, I guess like the the last week or so, the kind of the discussions between both kind of sides, uh, legal you know kind of teams, uh, seem to extend and seem to get into the nitty gritty. And I, I I literally just had this sense of sheesh, we just have to we just have to kind of you know wrap this up now. Like we're we're getting into semantics and. I'm also just generally a very trusting person, right? So it's, it's again, like, like that part of it felt very unnatural to me. But I can't remember like a, a single event, like, you know, a single email or a single call or a single issue that popped up that I felt would kind of threaten everything. I said the, the only thing that comes to mind is that, that last week or two where it, it kind of feels like we did, we got 90% of the deal done and then we literally had to cram that last 10% into that last week. And I think what made it worse was I was actually on a trip with, you know, in, in Europe, a planned holiday, pre-planned holiday with, you know, with John and, and 
our best friends, I was literally having to kind of jump on calls and answer emails and, you know, in between those things, which I, I think just extenuated that. So like by the time that we got to literally like, you know, Friday, you know, afternoon, 6 p.m. kind of thing, got to a point where both parties had agreed that, you know, we'd be pencils down and we'll be signing the agreement as it was at that stage. Like the the first thing I did was I I literally broke down in John's arms and I just I just cried right and it wasn't a it wasn't a I, I don't want to necessarily call it a sadness but it was just this pure outpouring of all of these pent up emotions and thoughts that culminated you know over the you know the preceding weeks. I have totally been there, and shortly thereafter I cracked open a bottle of whiskey. I remember, I, I literally remember the night that it closed. You know the, what we sold drip. I it's funny how many parallels that even though our experiences were different in terms of you running a process and me having a strategic or whatever, so much of what you're talking about is actually, it's bringing up a little bit of trauma for me. <laughs> the last week, the, you're right, the last week feels like a month's worth of work. It's like, we're, there's no chance we're going to close this Friday. Are you kidding me? And then everyone's arguing about this sentence and that word and what does it mean? And it's like infuriating, right? I was so frustrated and, and angry and stressed because I'm like, this has to go through. That's what you said. It's that your mind plays tricks on you. And it's like, I don't want to get attached to this, but really I'm kind of attached to it. You know, like this is, I want this to happen, but, and yet you can't just give in. You can't just say, I really want it to happen. So, okay, just go ahead and do what you want. You know, it's, it's this incredible mental battle. Exactly. And like, I think that's the thing, right, Rob? I mean, I, like, I think for me, that part of selling a business, I think is very unnatural, at least for me as an entrepreneur, and I suspect that, you know, it's probably going to be the case for most entrepreneurs, right? And that most entrepreneurs are bigger picture, you know, people and negotiating, uh, you know, acquisition like this is going into all those very, very fine details. Those details where you know that there was an email thread about this thing three weeks ago, but for the life of you, you can't find that exact line in that email thread anymore because that email thread is now a novel, right? And, Gmail has magically decided to split this up into multiple threads and whatnot, right? So, like, I think, I just think that's a very unnatural, that was a very unnatural state for me, at least, you know, getting into that level of integrity and especially so late in the transaction because as you just said, like, you get to a point of that attachment where it is point of no return, right? Where I know that, like, I need to push through now because, uh, you know, trying to turn this back and, you know, for this thing not to go through is that outcome is so much worse. Are there one or two things that you bought after the acquisition that you, you bought to celebrate that you wouldn't have bought before? Like, do you, do you now have a Tesla in your driveway, for example? <laughs> I, I know I do. I, I did not have a Tesla, uh, mostly because South Africa does not have an, by far, if any, public charging stations. Um, so it's, it's not a viable purchase. If that wasn't the case, then I might have. I, I've done two things. One totally, totally juvenile and the other one was, was pretty cool. The, the juvenile thing is I've never bought as much wine as I have in the last two months. And I already, I already have too much wine. I'm, I, I'm a bit of a collector. I'm mostly a wine drinker, but I really probably have too much wine. But so I, I definitely enjoyed geeking out, um, you know, on, on wine and probably making purchases that I would not have made before. The, the more significant thing, I think for me, this is the, the biggest reward that direct reward at least that I am kind of also kind of giving myself from the exit. And I so wish that I could claim this is my idea, but it was Jean's idea. But we're actually taking my whole family. So my parents and then my sisters, their spouses, and my one sister has 
two young kids uh, similar age as mine. So we were taking all of them uh, on a Disney cruise, which has been pre-booked and, and planned for, for middle next year. So, so we're doing that. Uh, and that's at least, as I said, like th- the reason I look forward to it is because getting an extended family like that together for any amount of time is already hard and getting to, uh, you know, experience something like that with them. It's just something that I really look forward to. So, yeah, so that's, those are the things that I have done for myself in, in recent weeks. Love it. And, you know, I often talk about freedom, purpose, and relationships, and it's like you've, you've now achieved a, a, a level of freedom that I'm guessing 20 years ago you would have, you know, pinched yourself to have. You did it while kind of, of diving into a deeper purpose of starting a company, doing something to, you know, improve your corner of the world. And I love that the capstone is comes back to relationships because one of the things that you are spending a good amount of money on is being with family. I think it's very poignant, man. And I just, I'm super happy for you. In all honesty, I just want to just say congratulations. And, you know, thanks so much for taking the time to to talk us through. And if folks actually want to hear a little more about it, I guess I got scooped. I thought that, that this was the first interview you were doing about the acquisition, but it turns out about four days ago on Friday, Zen founder, my very own wife, scooped me. And so I believe, I know you didn't go into as nearly as much detail, but you did talk a little bit about that on her show. So folks can certainly go check that out if they're interested. Yeah. And, and the other thing you should know, Rob, because I, I don't know how much I share, did share with you is we also scooped um, your newfound interest in poetry. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see how that's going to play out for you as well in, in the future and um, whether I'm going to see any tweets about kind of poetry from you. All right. I'd love, love to hear it. <laughs> Uh, so speaking of Twitter, you are 80 on Twitter. It's A-D-I-I. That's awesome. First name club, man. Anywhere else folks should, um, f- you know, you'd like folks to follow you online? Yeah. So it's, uh, it's either uh, A-D-I-I on Twitter, as you said, or A-D-I-I.me, which is, which is my blog. Um, and now that this kind of this massive life event has passed, I have, you know, more time and I'm back to a, to a weekly writing discipline. So if anyone wants to hear what I'm thinking, then that's where you know place to go. You did a really nice write-up of this just uh, about a week and a half ago. Folks can go to 80.me if they want to check it out. And frankly, if you have if you have questions for 80 and you'd like to see him come back on the show and answer questions, I totally did not pitch him on this beforehand, but um, you can email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or tweet at Rob Walling. And you know, if we get enough questions, we'll, we'll get 80 back on to answer those, assuming he's, he's up for it and can carve out the time. I'm definitely up to it. I've been up to, you know, for these kind of things ever since I, you know, as a teenager, I read Richard Branson autobiography where he basically said, uh, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So whatever kind of um, you know, bit of spotlight I can get, I will happily take. So if there's questions, uh, happy to pop back onto the show. Sounds great. Thanks again, man, for coming on the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Rob. Thanks again to AD for coming on the show. And as I mentioned, if you have questions for him, tweet him at me email me. You can email us questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or you can call our voicemail number 888-801-9690 and leave a voicemail. And I will bring AD back on the show if we have enough questions for him to run through those in a future episode. This podcast's theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. You should subscribe to this podcast. You can do it in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, so that you don't miss any episodes. And visit startupsfortherestofus.com to get a full transcript of each episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.